Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On a stormy night on the small island of Guernsey, a young paranormal expert joins a skeptical history teacher to record the first in a series of podcasts based on the island's incredible folklore and paranormal history. As the expert regales his horrifying stories, the teacher learns that we all have our own truth, our own story, ghosts that haunt us. Starring Olivier-nominated actor and former Blue Peter legend Peter Duncan, When Darkness Falls is a spine-chilling ghost story that delivers a twisted, terrifying and thrilling tale that The Guardian said will leave you cowering in your seat. Catch the brand new UK tour of When Darkness Falls from September 15th in a town near you. Select Nights will also feature myself delivering a live episode of Unexplained. For more details or to book tickets, visit whendarknessfalls.co.uk if you dare. This episode contains adult themes that some may find disturbing. Parental discretion is advised. Southeast Scotland in 1670. Edinburgh. A dark fairy tale of a city sat on a rupture of earth and rock overlooking the cold, steel waters of the Firth of Forth. A medieval castle, perched high up on volcanic rock, its sandstone walls stained black by rain. Narrow, labyrinthine streets fanning out like dendrites, each flanked by six and seven storey-high buildings, their gables and dormer windows jutting out in strange and unnatural ways, teetering as if forever on the verge of collapse. While below them, the streets run with human excrement and urine, flung out of windows by the bucketful, as rats and mice scatter about. One evening in early spring, sometime around midnight, 
All is quiet, save for the occasional sound of someone scurrying off into a distant alleyway, as two women, one the other's maid, make their way home from Castle Hill. Under a moonless sky, their footsteps echo along the road as they turn into the steep, winding confines of West Bow, and a light mist rises up to meet them. The towering tenements loom high above, crowding out the sky as they continue down the bow's steep slope. The maid, pushing back the shadows with the soft, hazy light of her lantern, while somewhere off, an animal snorts. When, from out of the darkness, they hear a sudden whooping and clapping, followed by a high-pitched cackle of laughter. Looking up, they can just make out three oddly shaped silhouettes in the flickering candlelight of an open window, their bodies heaving and limbs flailing with each cacination. Turning back to the street, the women are stopped suddenly in their tracks by the sight of a cloaked figure hunched over at the base of a narrow, twisted flight of stairs that lead up to the property from where the cackling is coming from. Thinking little of it at first, the women stare in shock as the figure rose up suddenly to its full height, a beguiling ten feet at least, revealing a set of unusually spindly limbs. The women stepped back into the shadows as the strange giant spectre burst out in a fit of maniacal laughter and then shot off into the night. With their curiosity aroused, the two women attempted to keep pace with the spindly figure, but no matter how swiftly their feet carried them, it seemed always to be the same distance ahead. At a turn in the road, the figure then slipped into a narrow lane, known locally as Stinking Close, and disappeared. Hurrying after it, the women stopped at the lane's entrance, and gasped at the sight beyond. What was usually nothing more than a narrow alleyway, connecting Westbow to Cowgate, the next road across, was now lit up, along its entire length, by flaming torches, as numerous dark hooded figures jostled about underneath them. Little of their faces could be seen, save for their mouths, which were all stretched wide open and emitting the most hideous cacophony of hysterical laughter. Terrified, the women hurried on to the safety of their home. The following morning, the streets now bustling once more with people horses and carts, the two women retraced their steps from the night before and soon found themselves at the bottom of the narrow, rickety stairwell from which the strange, towering figure had emerged. The maid grabbed a passing tanner, his foul-smelling leather apron streaked with blood, then pointed up to the window where they'd seen the three figures clapping and laughing together. Pray tell us, Whose house is that? she asked. Why, replied the tanner, that is the home of Major Thomas Weir, of course. You're listening to Unexplained.
and I'm Richard McLean Smith. Thomas Weir was born sometime around 1599 near Carluke in Lanarkshire, just southeast of Glasgow. By 1650, he'd managed to successfully navigate an extraordinarily complicated tide of events to become the head of the Edinburgh Town Guard, the city's fledgling police force. Twelve years previously, in 1638, a number of the leading powers in Scotland signed the National Covenant, a public declaration opposing King Charles I's plans to reform the Presbyterian Church of Scotland. Charles I, who was an Anglican, was King of Scotland, England and Ireland at the time and was keen to restructure the fiercely independent and powerful Church of Scotland in such a way that would make it and by extension the nation, easier for him to subdue and control. Those who signed the National Covenant, or were sympathetic to its aims, called themselves Covenanters, and King Charles naturally hated them. By then, any English and Scottish monarch, although still very much the head of state, was increasingly reliant on support from the lawmakers of Parliament, to wield their power. When Charles asked them for military support to force the Church of Scotland to back down, they refused. And so, the first of a series of wars were ignited between various forces in England, Scotland and Ireland that would collectively become known as the Wars of the Three Kingdoms. This complex matrix of belligerence was made especially complicated by the respective ambitions of each division of power. The Scottish Covenanters opposed King Charles I and his proposals for the Church of Scotland, while English parliamentarians also opposed the King. However, the Covenanters also opposed the parliamentarians' plan to dispense with the King altogether, and all three parties had interests in Ireland, in the course of the next ten years, all would clash in a bloody scramble for supremacy of ideas, which, by 1650, had resulted in the defeat and execution of Charles I, and an uneasy alliance between Oliver Cromwell's parliamentarian forces and the Covenanters of the Church of Scotland, as laid out in the 1643 Solemn League and Covenant Agreement, as the son of a wealthy landed couple, the strict Presbyterian Thomas Weir was a man of some political status and as such was one of the signatories of the Solemn League and Covenant Agreement. Having fought in numerous battles alongside the parliamentarian forces, he'd somehow survived it all, earning himself the title of major in the process and settled in Edinburgh to take up his position as the commander of the town guard. On first arriving in Edinburgh, Weir and his younger sister Jean, who accompanied him everywhere, lived in Cowgate, one of the main thoroughfares of the city, at the home of one Grizzold Whitford. By 1650, 
He and Jean had moved into a house on West Bow, an especially steep section of road, which ran in a Z-shaped pattern all the way down from Castle Hill at the base of Edinburgh Castle to the grass market at the bottom, where the city's largest market space was located. They lived there with their servant, Bessie Wames. Thomas Weir was tall, with a distinctively large nose and a commanding, brooding presence, who could often be seen stalking the streets of Edinburgh, wearing a long black cloak and clutching a thick, ornate staff in his hand. The staff was a curious thing, engraved all along its body with pictures of centaurs and strange symbols, while its top comprised a crooked head of thornwood, all of which only served to amplify his imposing countenance. His was a life of purity, bound to the good book and the word of God, which he was never shy of spreading himself at any given opportunity, and he was good at it too, being a compelling and authoritative public speaker with a ferocious intellect and a prodigious memory when it came to quoting scripture who never missed an opportunity to stick the boot in when others fell short of his own puritanical standards. And so it was with some alarm to those who were gathered there when late one evening he burst angrily into an alehouse next to the nether bow, the eastern gateway into the city, on the lookout for several guards who deserted their post. Finding them tucked away, drinking merrily at a small table in the corner. Weir stormed over to them and demanded they return to their post immediately. The men, startled by Weir's sudden appearance, apologised for their lack of judgement, explaining that they'd merely wanted to join a friend for a drink who was in town for the night. They pointed to the stranger sat among them and introduced him as a Mr. Byrne. Then something strange came over Major Weir, as all his confidence and authority seemed to suddenly drain from him, and the blood rushed from his face. He stepped back, in the grip of some unnatural terror, quietly repeating the name to himself over and over again. Burn. Burn. Burn, he said. The guards stared on in confusion as Weir then turned quickly on his heels and fled hastily from the building. It is said that Weir was not seen outside his home for a good two weeks after this incident. Not long after his peculiar turn at the alehouse, Major Weir was out walking in the hills with a friend when they approached a narrow stream. On being informed that it was called Liberton Burn, Weir became suddenly distressed and refused to cross it. It seemed clearly that something in that word brought him immediate distress. By 1651, Weir's time as commander of the Edinburgh Guard had come to an end, Effectively retired, he quickly found his place among the more powerful acolytes of the local Presbyterian community. 
Thomas's sister Jean, meanwhile, developed a reputation of her own for being a formidable spinner of yarn, producing it at a rate seldom seen before. The West Bow, where the Weirs lived, was known for being home to some of the most pious individuals in the city, among them the many tinsmiths who resided there, who were known collectively as the Bowhead Saints. Thomas Weir was quick to prove their equal, and with his passion for prayer, soon found himself being invited to speak at the homes of his neighbours whenever the occasion called for it. He could often be found at the bedside of the old and infirm, dispensing reassuring pearls of biblical wisdom to aid their suffering. The effect all the more reassuring due to Weir's confident air and for being so well known as a man whose own devotion to God and rejection of sin was unquestionable. And soon, people were travelling from as far as 40 to 50 miles away just to hear him speak. And speak he did, always with that peculiar staff by his side, his magnetic words full of such gravity. It was as though they had come from the very mouth of God themselves. Now hear this, he would say, as he leant heavily on his staff. Galatians chapter 5 verse 19 Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. This podcast is supported by Morgan Stanley. What do you get from the Morgan Stanley client experience? Listening more than talking and a personalized plan to guide you through a changing world. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. One morning, a woman arrived at the home of John Knave, a Presbyterian minister in New Mills, a village located about 50 miles west of Edinburgh. The woman was clearly in some distress as she wrestled with what it was she wanted to say After Knave told her forcefully to spit it out, the woman explained finally that she was certain she'd just seen a man in a secluded field having sex with a horse. The man, she insisted, was Major Thomas Weir. The accusation was of course ludicrous, and at a time when the fate of Scotland and the Covenanters was still very much in the balance, an extremely dangerous one too. And so, there was only one course of action. The following day, the woman was paraded through the town and flogged mercilessly by the local hangman for her false accusation. In 1660, after ten years without a king, the monarchy was restored across Scotland, England and Ireland, with Charles I's son, 
Charles II, taking the throne. The Church of Scotland succeeded in retaining its power and independence, however, only after it was agreed to abolish the reforms made by the Covenanters. As a result, many Covenanters were persecuted as they sought to maintain their influence in the country. Strangely, Thomas Weir avoided any such complications and for the next ten years continued to be widely celebrated for his powers of prayer. But as the years passed and age caught up with him, Weir began to slow down somewhat and by 1670, as he approached his 70th birthday, he seemed to have become gripped by a heavy melancholy that left him weary and lacking his usual enthusiasm for praying. Then, early in the spring of 1670, Weir invited four of the most eminent men from his circle of Presbyterian friends to gather at his home, including among them Meister John Sinclair, a local Presbyterian minister. With darkness already falling, the men made their way to West Bow, and up the rickety staircase, passing through the courtyard beyond, as the sound of Jean Weir's spinning wheel could be heard echoing throughout. Then on into the house they went, where they were greeted by a fragile-looking Thomas, leaning heavily on his staff under the gentle flicker of candlelight. He bid them welcome as he sat wearily on a chair, and gestured for them to do the same. The men looked about, unsure as to why exactly they had been summoned. Then Weir finally spoke. It was no use, he said. It was time to come clean. What Major Thomas Weir told the men that night has never precisely been ascertained, only that it apparently included a confession to a series of unspeakable acts that he'd committed throughout his life and that for over 20 years he'd been a servant of the devil. That night, as the stunned men left the Weir's home, they made a pact never to reveal anything of what they'd just heard in fear that they might be tainted by their association with the Major. However, Meister John Sinclair was so disturbed by it all, he felt obligated to inform Sir Andrew Ramsay, who as Lord Provost was the city's administrative head. Believing the crimes that Weir had confessed to, too inhumane and horrid for any human to have been capable of, Ramsay promptly sent two physicians to Weir's house to assess his mental health. Perhaps he thought the man was merely going senile in his old age. But to his horror, the doctors found nothing wrong with Weir's cerebral faculties. The man, they said, was perfectly sane. The following night, two Baileys, tasked with arresting Major Weir and his sister Jean, who he'd also implicated in his confession, burst into their home. As they grabbed the then 60-year-old Jean, she cried out to them to first confiscate the Major's staff, 
before he used it to drive them out of the house. That, she said, was where he derived his power. Sure enough, the staff was secured and the major, who was found shortly afterwards, offered no resistance to his arrest. The Baileys then asked if there was any money kept in the house and were directed to a series of cloth bundles full of coins that were dotted about the place. After locking the Weir siblings up in the old Tollbooth prison, the Baileys retired to a local inn to get a drink by the fire and count the money they'd taken. After pooling it all together, they threw the cloths into the fire and were amazed to see them whip and dance about strangely in the flames before finally burning. In one of the bundles, they were also said to have found a strange root of some sort, which they too tossed onto the fire. The moment it landed, it sparked and crackled like gunpowder, then emitted a huge cannon-like bang and shot up into the chimney like a firework. Meanwhile, up in the old toll booth, Meister Sinclair paid a visit to Major Weir and begged him to repent, but Weir refused, telling Sinclair to leave him alone and that there was no saving him. And so Sinclair turned his attention to his sister Jean. Still not quite able to believe all that Weir had confessed to, Sinclair needed answers. At first, Jean denied it all, until finally, she confessed too. It was all true, she said, and this was how it began. It was sometime, one night in August 1648, in the early hours, when there was a knock at the door at Thomas and Jean's home in West Bow. Having been woken up by the knocking, Jean was then told by Thomas to join him in the street, where, to her amazement, six black horses and a large stagecoach that appeared to be almost entirely on fire was waiting for them. Nervously, Jean followed her brother into the burning coach, and together they were whisked away to Dalkeith, a small town just south of Edinburgh, where she claimed Thomas had a meeting with an unknown man, who, she understood later, was the devil. Thomas returned from the meeting, clutching the strange staff for which he was so well known. Weir was said to have made a pact with the devil, who told him that from that point on, he could do whatever he wished, and that only a burn could stop him. He was also gifted strange magical powers, which he appeared to draw directly from the peculiar staff. As if to prove this to himself, the following day, he was said to have told anyone that would listen that King Charles's army had been beaten in the Battle of Preston, something which he couldn't possibly have known at that time. Soon after, Jean too had a run-in with the devil, when she was visited by a strange tall lady who appeared at her door with three children strapped to her body. The woman urged Jean to do battle with the Queen of the Fairies, 
and take her place as the devil's wife. She then asked Jean to give her all the silver she possessed, which she did. Ever since that day, Jean found she could produce more yarn on her spinning wheel than she ever thought possible, as though she too had been given a magical gift. Another time, she was visited by an unusually short woman who gave her a strange route, telling her that as long as she kept it safe, she would have the power to do whatever she chose. The woman then threw down a cloth on the floor of her house and told Jean to stand on it while saying, All crosses and cares go out of this house now. And Jean obliged. Meister John Sinclair listened on aghast, recognising immediately another pact with the devil. Jean then explained that her and Thomas's mother had been a witch who bore the devil's mark just like her brother did. Here, said Jean, as she pulled up the headdress that she was wearing, I have the devil's mark too. The God-fearing Sinclair refused to see it at first, but his curiosity eventually got the better of him. Jean pulled off the headdress and furrowed her brow, where a small horseshoe shape emerged in her skin. Another clear indication, thought Sinclair, that she too had sold her soul to the devil. The minister shuddered at the sight of it. The Weir's trial took place on April 9th, 1670, during which the full extent of Major Thomas Weir's confession was revealed. The Major, as it turned out, had been raping his sister Jean for the best part of 50 years. Having once been married, shortly after the death of his wife, Weir also impregnated his stepdaughter most likely as the result of rape too, but had managed to have her married off to a man in England before anyone found out. He was also found guilty of multiple counts of fornication, having sex with married women, as well as his maid. The degree to which these acts were consensual is unclear. Weir was also found guilty, having finally admitted to it, of numerous counts of bestiality, with dogs, cows and a horse, vindicating the woman who'd been whipped so mercilessly for accusing him of the exact same thing. Weir was eventually convicted of perpetrating incest and adultery and sentenced to death. Unlike her brother, Jean was not only accused of incest, but also sorcery and witchcraft. However, it was only for the crime of incest for which she was deemed to have been an equal party to, that she was convicted. She too was sentenced to death. On Monday, April 11th, Major Thomas Weir, too old and infirm to walk himself, was dragged on a sled to Greenside in Leith, a town just north of Edinburgh. There, he was tied against a post and had a rope placed around his neck, which was gradually tightened by the executioner. As the rope bit into his throat, 
Weir's body squirmed underneath as his face went purple. Saliva foamed at his mouth and he evacuated his bowels. When he was finally stilled, Weir and the post he was tied to were set on fire. Then the staff was tossed onto the flames. The crowd shrieked at the sight of it as it seemed to writhe and twist in the fire as though something alive inside it were trying to escape. All of a sudden, screams rang out from within the flames. Thomas Weir was still alive. And then all went quiet, save for the spit and crackle of burning flesh. When Jean Weir was informed of her brother's death, She at first refused to believe it. When she was finally convinced that both he and his staff had been destroyed, she is said to have become enraged, shouting, I know he is with the devils, for with them he lived. For her own execution, which took place on April 12th, 1670, Jean was led down to the grass market, barely a stone's throw from her home, where she was greeted by a large and vicious crowd, eager to see her hang for her so-called crimes. As she made her way up the ladder to the gallows, she stopped suddenly and began hurriedly to take off her clothes, much to the shock of all who'd gathered there. At once, the executioner was ordered by the lawmen to put her clothes back on, angered by what they saw as the indecency of her naked body. But Jean pushed the executioner away, punching him hard in the face before he was finally able to subdue her and put her clothes back on, after which she was hauled onto a stool and had the noose placed around her neck. It was a final act of defiance, perhaps, from someone who, after a lifetime of abuse, and being made to feel ashamed of her own body, wanted to display it finally, without shame, and on her own terms. And then the stool was kicked from under her feet. It is said that so fearful were people of what had transpired inside the Weir's home that it lay empty for over a hundred years. All the while, strange shapes could be seen, flitting about behind its broken window panes and the ghostly sound of Jean Weir's spinning wheel creaking and whirring could be heard echoing through the courtyard below it. In 1878, the house was demolished entirely as the upper part of West Bow was effectively removed and the rest of the road joined on to what is now Victoria Street. Some say... If you ever find yourself walking through West Bow in the early hours just before dawn, the thundering of hooves can sometimes be heard, followed by the appearance of a fiery coach pulled by six black horses. And if you are brave enough to look, you might just catch a glimpse of the gurning face of Major Thomas Weir behind its flaming windows. If you enjoy Unexplained and would like to help support us, you can now do so via Patreon. To receive access to ad-free episodes, 
Just go to patreon.com forward slash unexplained pod to sign up. Unexplained the book and audiobook, featuring 10 stories that have never before been covered on the show, is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Waterstones, among other bookstores. All elements of Unexplained, including the show's music, are produced by me, Richard McLean Smith. Please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts, and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplainedpodcast. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.